The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are joining us from remote locations over the Internet, especially those of you who are listening from outposts in the Middle East. Thank you for your many letters and emails. And I also want to take a moment to welcome new listeners who are tuning in on radio affiliates in Iowa, New Hampshire, New York, Florida, California, and across all 50 states. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, former commander of the International Space Station, Mr. Leroy Chow, will be joining us to talk about the race to commercialize suborbital space travel and whether China has the upper hand. There are increasingly fewer areas where the United States has maintained its global leadership, and certainly space exploration has got to be on the top of that list. Today we're going to take an honest look at where the U.S. stands and what we can and should expect in the near future. But before Mr. Chow joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Leroy Chow was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His parents fled from China to Taiwan after World War II, where they met, married, and immigrated to the United States in the 1950s. The young Leroy grew up in Danville, California, and earned his undergraduate degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and his graduate degree from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Following graduation, he went to work for Hexel Corporation, researching advanced aerospace materials for NASA projects. In 1989, he joined the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and one year later, Chow was selected by NASA to become an astronaut. Mr. Chow is a veteran of four space flights, which have included spacewalks and vehicle activity. He also served as the commander of the International Space Station. Mr. Chow stepped down from his NASA post in 2005 and since that time has been actively working in the private sector as the commercial race to space has begun heating up. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report NASA astronaut, commander, and expert engineer, Mr. Leroy Chow. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Chow. Oh, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, I have to admit, I've been excited about commercial space travel ever since Burt Rutan won the Ansari X Prize in 2004, and soon afterwards, Richard Branson announced Virgin Galactic, and he started selling advance tickets for $250,000. So, so can you give us an update on where we really are in terms of when the average person, like myself, uh, will be able to afford suborbital flight? Sure. No, I remember 2003, 2004 very clearly. I was just about to go launch to the space station with the Russians out of Kazakhstan, and, and it was the, the big deal that uh, Spaceship One, designed by Burt Rutan, was the first you know, non-government vehicle to actually touch space. So that was a very exciting time. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, in the ensuing years, we saw a lot of excitement, a lot of companies throw their hats in the ring, a lot of startups going, and then, you know, here we are, uh, gosh, uh, over 10 years later, and it still hasn't materialized, okay? So, uh, unfortunately, a lot of hype in the beginning. Uh, Virgin Galactic, of course, is still working towards their first mission. Uh, they are, st- you know, recovering from an accident they had about a year and a half ago where they lost a test pilot and, and their, their prototype vehicle. 
they're getting back on that horse. They're, they're uh, building their second vehicle. It should be finished soon, and they'll resume flight testing. Uh, but they have not put together a projection on when they expect to have their first commercial flight, which was uh, the latest before the accident was slated to be before the end of uh, last year, of 2015. There's some other companies out there trying for suborbital flight. XCOR has been working for a number of years, uh, but uh, they have not yet announced uh, their timetable for their first mission. Uh, we have some commercial successes in SpaceX. Uh, they have started from scratch, built their own rocket engines, their own rockets, their own spacecraft. They've flown six cargo missions to the ISS. And they are currently, of course, working on building an astronaut version of their Dragon spacecraft to fly to astronauts to and from ISS. They are under contract with NASA to deliver that first astronaut flight in 2017, uh, along with the Boeing Corporation. They are the other company that NASA is uh, is helping, uh, both financially and technically. Uh, Boeing is working on a spacecraft that they are calling the Astroliner, which will also be a capsule that will fly astronauts to and from ISS possibly as early as the end of 2017. So there is activity going on to kind of in a long-winded summary, but uh, it hasn't materialized as quickly as those of us uh, in the business and even the general public would have hoped. Absolutely. You know, I think about it looking back, three years after Lindbergh made his nonstop flight from New York to Paris, the number of airline passengers jumped over 3,000%, and uh, immediately an aviation boom was underway. What's holding up commercial passenger flight in in outer space? Well, Can you it, it, sum, summarize that for us. I mean, why sure. is it taking so long? <laughs> no, you bet. <laughs> and, and of course, along the same lines, back in 1969 when we landed on the moon, boy, I mean, everybody around the world, no matter where you were, I think everyone was so excited that humankind had actually accomplished putting people on the moon. And everybody thought certainly by the 90s we'd have colonies on the moon and we would have even have visited Mars. But of course, none of that materialized either. And the bottom line is that, you know, it's very, it's much, much more difficult to get people into space than in the air. You know, the amount of energy that you have to impart to a spacecraft to get it into orbit is is just dramatically uh, higher than you know going you know even at 30 40,000 feet but we uh, have so re- much technology and, and we have you know uh, new materials right. and you would think that uh, somehow we could use all that technology all this data analytics that we have to uh, to create a uh, an economical way to get up there and back down. Well, you're right. Technology has moved quite a bit, but uh, and, and even rocket engines have evolved quite a bit. We've gone from the early, early days of, uh, of basically kerosene and liquid oxygen, or even uh, alcohol and liquid oxygen engines, gasoline liquid alco- liquid oxygen al- uh, engines, to modern uh, liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen engines and, and modern solid rocket boosters. But um, but we have not been able to bring the cost down, okay? And so uh, what I was kind of getting at is the amount of energy you have to put into the vehicle, that that drives up the inherent uh, risk, if you will, and the the necessary processes and attention to detail to make sure that you can make this vehicle, uh, you know, safe enough that it's acceptable to get astronauts or other people to and from low Earth orbit. The speed that you're traveling in low Earth orbit is 17,000, 500 miles an hour. So compare that to a commercial jetliner traveling around 500 miles an hour, uh, you know, traveling at an altitude of about 30, 40,000 feet, as opposed to a spacecraft traveling, you know, somewhere 200, 300 nautical miles uh, up in in orbit. And so it's partly that, you know, the expense of a rocket to, to make a rocket. We haven't been able to make a reusable rocket, which would help quite a bit because, uh, um, just think about all the the engines and everything else that you throw away every time you launch a satellite. And so you can't launch a commercial satellite for anything less than over a hundred million dollars, you know, no matter where you go. And that's one thing that SpaceX is trying to do. You've probably seen in the news lately that they were able to actually land a first stage booster back at the Kennedy Space Center, yes. back at Cape Canaveral. That was quite a feat. And that's a first step towards reusable rockets. You know, the devil's in the details, of course, and we have to see what it's going to take to refurbish that booster and then recertify it for flight. And so that was what 
got the shuttle. The shuttle was supposed to, well, it was reusable, but it was supposed to be inexpensive. That's the one thing the shuttle didn't live up to, is that it turned out to be enormously expensive to refurbish and, and launch the shuttle again. Not as much, not nearly as much as it would have cost to build a new shuttle every time, but, but still, uh, it was, you know, a pretty expensive vehicle to operate, but uh, it was also an extremely capable vehicle. So, I mean, I think, you know, we've come a long ways in technology, like you're saying, uh, but uh, there's also the commercial part, okay? So yes. how much are people willing to pay to go into space? That also factors into it. Yes, well, obviously, you know, I want the ticket price to come down. Right. <laughs> so sometime <laughs> in my lifetime so I can, I can make that trip myself. We have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from former International Space Station Commander Leroy Chow. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right, I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and drag and drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at tableau.com slash Costa. That's tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best U.S. Sparkling Wine Award. We fared really well overall. We had three wines win best of class, which was great. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea, or find us online at caracciolicellars.com, or reach us by phone, 831-622-7722. Wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, a crashing economy. Are you ready? At best, your local stores have a three-day supply of food. Will your family have to fight over what's left? Are you willing to gamble your family's safety that it'll never happen to you? Be wise and be ready with 25-year shelf life Wise Food Storage. Wise Food Storage provides affordable, ready-made gourmet meals with a super long 25-year shelf life. Meals like pasta alfredo, cheesy lasagna, breakfast, dessert, drinks, and snacks. Just add water and your family is eating delicious food instead of fighting for scraps in a food riot. Try it free. Order a no-obligation free sample meal delivered right to your front door. And for a limited time, get a 10% discount and free shipping on all orders. Once done, you're set for 25 years. Be wise and be ready with Wise Food Storage. Call for your free sample now. 800-775-9353. 800-775-9353. Cash flows and money move. The Money Moves show is dedicated to delivering tips and tools to help you earn more, save more, and protect your hard-earned assets. Host Pamela Fugit-Hedrick interacts with her guests and callers every Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Recent topics have included what is going on locally with health insurance, tips to maximize your Social Security income, how do you build an emergency fund for your family, Medicare 101 tips, how do you choose and pay for home health care, and many other topics. So tune in, take notes, call and get answers to your financial questions from Pamela Fugit-Hedrick on Money Moves, Thursdays at 7 p.m. That's Money Moves, Thursdays. Is 7 p.m. on KSEO 
AM 1080 Santa Cruz and KOMY 1340 Watsonville and 104.1 on your FM dial. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former commander of the International Space Station, Mr. Leroy Chow, who incidentally was the first astronaut to vote in a presidential election for outer space. Is that right, Mr. Chow? Well, that's true, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I did vote in the 2004 presidential election. I uh, had forgotten about uh, voting and hadn't filled out a uh, absentee ballot uh, application in time before I, I had to travel to Russia for my final training. So uh, uh, fortunately, the folks at NASA were able to set it up so that I could vote from the International Space Station. Well, that is a record no one can take away from you. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's talk about the space programs of China, Russia, Japan, and other countries. Recently, you came out very strongly on the need for the U.S. to cooperate with China. Uh, you've even gone so far as to say to do otherwise might jeopardize our leadership in space. Can you speak to that for a moment? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in 2003, China became only the third country or even the third entity able to launch astronauts into orbit, into space. And so, uh, you know, and at that time, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, China actually publicly asked or, you know, expressed their interest in joining the International Space Station program, and they were uh, rebuffed by the United States. And the first reason that we gave was that, well, their technology is not good enough for us, you know, and of course that turned out not to be true. We've seen China make a steady march into space. Uh, they've operated a small docking target, a small space lab that they've sent crews to. They've launched their first uh, uh, women astronauts. They have uh, done their first uh, short spacewalks, and so they're moving along very well. And, the, the you know, China is has a long-term vision. They, they intend to go into space to stay. Uh, the reason any country gets into human spaceflight is mainly for prestige, for national prestige. You know, that's, that's why the, the Soviets did it in the beginning, and that's why we matched them, and it became a perception of who had the better technology. And uh, that's why, ultimately, why we said we were going to go to the moon and why we did go to the moon. And so uh, China now, uh, it's an open secret that they intend to go to the moon. Uh, in recent months, we've seen the European Space Agency publicly say that they've been in talks with the Russians about doing joint astronaut visits to the moon themselves. Russia has expressed interest in establishing a moon base. And so the United States, what we're doing, we are, of course, leading the International Space Station program, which makes a lot of sense, has been a very successful program. But if, you know, if we're going to maintain that leadership after having retired the space shuttle uh, over four years ago and, you know, having since that time no ability to launch our own astronauts into space, uh, if we're going to maintain that uh, leadership position, uh, it makes all the sense in the world for the United States to lead an international effort to go back to the moon to stay. And so if we can bring in all the international partners we currently have on the International Space Station program, including Russia, and then bring in newcomers like China, who are, are already launching their astronauts into space, then we would, be, you know, we would retain that leadership position. If we don't, uh, we risk being left behind, frankly. Uh, it was uh, just uh, two and a half years ago that I was at a, a major aerospace conference in China, uh, and they came out in uh, the end of 2013 with a big splash inviting other countries to come fly with them on their space station, which they plan to start building in 2018 and have fully operational by 2022. Every one of our international partners on the International Space Station were talking to China about flying not only experiments, but also their own astronauts to Chinese space stations. So if we stop operating our space station and we have this vague uh, exploration program, you know, we're, we, we are in danger. The United States, we're in danger of being left behind. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I guess I'm going to have to. What What is the obstacle to us cooperating with China and other countries? What's in the way? Well, 
Right. And so, you know, uh, seven, eight years ago when uh, there was the administration change, uh, there was great hope for cooperation with China. We had a president and a NASA administrator, Charlie Bolden, I know very well from, you know, we were in the astronaut office together for many years, uh, both very uh, much in favor of doing more with China, particularly in space. We have seen from our cooperation with the Russians starting in the mid-1990s that uh, uh, the relationship, the overall relationship between the United States and Russia uh, really improved dramatically as a result of cooperating together in space. And so uh, the hope was we could do the same thing with China. But unfortunately, there's some very vocal, uh, very strong-feeling members of Congress who don't want to do anything with China. And, uh, you know, the, the arguments they put out just frankly don't hold water for me. They say, well, they're out to steal our secrets. They're going to uh, learn all these, um, you know, these uh, uh, defense secrets, which is not true because, uh, frankly, from a civil space program like NASA's running, uh, you're not going to learn any military secrets about how to operate a space station. You know, we're not working on guidance systems to make missiles more accurate, anything like that. And as far as uh, technology transfer, our relationship with Russia, to my knowledge, there has been no improper technology transfer in either direction. And so the same safeguards that we use with Russia uh, could be applied to China. So unfortunately, I think there's just this, uh, this innate fear because China has been kind of the up-and-coming uh, superpower just in the last year or so, uh, you know, beating out Japan as the second largest economy in the world after the United States, although still a distant second. But, um, you know, uh, people feel threatened. And uh, I, my position has always been it is much more constructive to engage than to try to isolate. We try that with Cuba, you know, how many years, how many decades has we tried to isolate Cuba? And, you know, look how successful that's been. Well, I think the real question is what happens if we don't engage China, and I think you're addressing that. We're leaving the door wide open for Russia and China to cooperate. Uh, the Chinese have already announced in 2018 they're going to start their own space station. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, you know, all of our partners, I mean, initially, two years ago, a year and a half ago, we had not, United States, we had not yet committed to operating station past 2020. And so back in 2013, during that conference, it looked like, well, gosh, the United States is going to end the station program in 2020, and all our partners are going to go fly with China. You know, and so it would have been the perfect baton pass between a relay race. So here you go. And, uh, you know, what are we left with? We're, we're trying to build the next generation vehicle, the Orion, and the next generation rocket, the space launch system. Uh, we've got this idea that we're going to go retrieve a, a boulder off the surface of an asteroid robotically, put it in cislunar space, you know, orbit between the Earth and the moon, and then fly some kind of, uh, you know, astronaut missions with that boulder sometime in the 2023 time frame. And, and frankly, the, United, you know, the American public hasn't really gotten that excited about it. And so we really need something bold. And I, I think a return to the moon uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, there are those who say, well, we've been to the moon. We, we were in the moon in 1969. That's true. But we have not been back since 72, and we have not stayed for long term. We haven't gone over there and stayed for weeks or, or months or anything like that. Uh, we, if, we, we're, if we're serious about going to Mars, about sending astronauts to Mars, the moon is the perfect place to test all your hardware. You want to make sure everything's going to work, your, your habitats, rovers, spacesuits, uh, before you send it off to Mars, you, you want to train astronauts. You, maybe you want to train your crews to operate on the moon, which is only three days away, before you send them to Mars. You know? and, and that's why the moon is such a great testing ground, because it's close. If something happens and you need to get the crew back, it's, it's three days away. The, the, the time frames we talk about transit to Mars on average, even when the planets are lined up, is six months one way. And so mm -hmm. if you have a problem going outbound to Mars, uh, you're looking at a year at least before you get your crew back. Yes, well, as you point out, what a wonderful staging location and training camp uh, for the astronauts. And the Russians and Chinese have already declared that they would like to create some kind of station on uh, the moon as well. So uh, there's always the danger. They act uh, and we act alone. And we seem to have this issue with acting alone. Now we have to take another break. When we return, we'll find out what the U.S. must do to reclaim its leadership in space or whether it's too late. You're listening to the Costa As Report. scientist who works hard to stay on top of current events and trends, I know how easy it is to get caught up in the details of a story and lose sight of the big picture. What is happening to society as a whole? Where are we headed? Why does it feel as if there's greater instability, unrest, and danger in the world? 
The truth is, very few of us have time to contemplate these questions. And if we're waiting for our leaders or the media to paint a clear picture, well, we may be in for a long wait. That's why I'm urging you to grab a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com. Find out why scientists, government leaders, and the heads of the largest corporations in America are waking up to a newly uncovered pattern of human behavior. That's The Watchman's Rattle at RebeccaCosta.com, a bestseller in 26 countries and a book that Richard Branson, Donald Trump, and experts everywhere are calling a must-read. That's The Watchman's Rattle, available at bookstores everywhere and online at RebeccaCosta.com. Hi, I'm Kathleen Richards, the host of House Calls, which airs on Thursday evenings from 8 to 9 on KSEO Radio 1080. Please tune in to find out answers to all those questions that you have about what's the best bang for the buck if I remodel my house. How do I find a great tenant? What happens with all those what ifs? And we'll answer those questions for you. So please tune in to House Calls on Thursday from 8 to 9 on KSEO Radio. Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you. But if you listen up, it may change your life. There's an interesting relationship between glucose and the amino acid glutamine. Glutamine can be used as fuel by the cells in the same way that glucose can. In other words, cells can get their energy needs met from glutamine as well as from sugar. But glutamine doesn't have nearly the same damaging effects as glucose. Glutamine is like sugar on its best behavior. Sugar has a really strong personality. Glucose is a bad boy. It's sexy and every living cell is attracted to it. Glutamine, on the other hand, is much more introverted, maybe refined is a better word, like a much more subtle, mild mild-mannered version of glucose. Glucose is like a jock. Glutamine is like a librarian. Until it gets into a cell, that is. Once glutamine gets into the cell, it rips off its glasses, lets down its hair, and becomes just as cocky and as sexy and has just as strong a personality as does glucose. It can contribute to cell energy in the same fashion as glucose, and when a cell is getting its energy needs met, that means less work for insulin, it means no hypoglycemia or low blood sugar, and that makes glutamine a great amino acid for reducing sugar cravings. Glutamine can be said to be a diabetic's best nutritional friend. In fact, its stabilizing effect on insulin and high blood sugar can actually improve insulin sensitivity and reduce its secretion. Because excessive insulin is associated with heart health issues, degenerative diseases, and accelerated aging, making sure you're getting enough glutamine in high-protein foods like eggs and dairy and organic hormone-free meats can help you feel better and live longer, too. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can Purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm a pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Ed Robertson inviting you to join us for the next edition of TV Confidential. Sunday morning from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. here on KSCO AM 1080 in Santa Cruz. And our guests will include Mary Ann Anderson. Mary's books on film and television include Ida Lupino, Beyond the Camera, and The Making of the Hitchhiker Illustrated. That's TV Confidential every Sunday morning from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. on AM 1080 KSCO. Listen and be heard. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Mr. Leroy Chow. And before the break, we were talking about the many benefits of building an outpost uh, on the moon. So let me ask you this. NASA has plans to land a man on Mars and send astronauts to an asteroid. I believe there's also a mission to Jupiter's moon Europa planned. Um, In your view, would these missions be less important than building a station on the moon? Uh, In in other words, which is more important to maintaining our leadership? 
Well, sure. I mean, first, first of all, NASA has kind of a vague notion of going to Mars. I wouldn't say that there's a mission or even a plan. Uh, we have the first steps of a plan, which are, okay, we're going to build the Orion spacecraft and the Space Launch System rocket, but yes. we don't have a concrete schedule or even a, a budget outline or anything like that or a timetable of going to Mars. Uh, as far as the asteroid goes, uh, the, the mission right now, the asteroid retrieval mission, is to send a robotic spacecraft out to pluck a boulder off of the surface of an asteroid and bring it back, not actually send astronauts out there. Europa is a very exciting place. Uh, you know, there's possibility of life uh, maybe existing or having existed under the uh, the surface of the um, the oceans there. It's very intriguing, uh, but there are no current plans to send astronauts there. It would be an unmanned probe, certainly very much worth doing. And and so as far as sending astronauts out farther, the moon makes sense to me as the, the first place, or the next place, I should say, the next place to go. We've been to the moon before in the late 60s and early 70s, but let's go back there, build a man or a crew-tended base that we can you know, send astronauts to, I mean, think of it as kind of a vacation home, I guess, that, you know, you, when you're, you're done doing your testing, you, you lock it up and you, you know, shut it down and, and fly back to the Earth. Uh, that's a very different thing than a permanently crewed base that we were looking at doing in the mid-2000s. Um, you know, logistically, it's a lot easier to do, uh, you know, just kind of a, have crews visit and then leave again, rather than having the logistics supply to have to keep maintaining that. And so you go and fly missions there when it makes sense to test your heart. Uh, as far as the political front goes, um, as we were talking about before the break, it makes all the sense in the world for the United States to lead this effort back to the moon. We've, we're the only nation that's been there. Uh, you know, we've got the resources and the technology to, to lead that effort, and it's a natural extension of what we're already doing with the International Space Station. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Uh, but all of these missions depend on a very large sum of money and the willingness of Congress to allocate sufficient funding, which has not always been the case. I'm always amazed when they say, you know, it, maybe it's a 20-year project, and they say, well, w you know, we're going to cut the budget by 30 percent. And I think to myself, well, it doesn't scale down. I mean, if you're planning right. a mission to Mars... Uh, I don't know how you do 70% of that mission. <laughs> right, right. No, you're absolutely right. And, uh, uh, you know, back in the Apollo days, I mean, it was because we were in the Cold War, you know. I mean, everybody uh, pretty much realizes that if we had not been in the Cold War with the, the Soviet Union, we probably would not have made that proclamation that we were going to go to the moon, and we probably wouldn't have done it. And so, um, as I was mentioning earlier, I mean, political, you know, Politics always drives the day on decisions, especially about government funding. And so, you know, there has to be a reason for us to do it. And if we decide, uh, we the United States, that we want to lead this effort uh, to Mars and we're willing to make that commitment uh, and politically for, uh, you know, to bring the, the major nations, spacefaring nations of the world together and, you know, lead to a bold new place to, to discover, you know, what we can only imagine right now, then I think that would be a very positive step. But as you say, it's, it is a lot of money. Now, interestingly, uh, you know, SpaceX, Elon Musk, uh, Elon has publicly stated most recently, just a week ago, that, you know, the reason he started his company, SpaceX, is that he personally wants to go to Mars and he wants to colonize Mars. And his spacecraft that he's developing for NASA, uh, largely at NASA's expense, uh, is, is specifically designed to be evolvable to one day be able to, a version of it, uh, would be able to travel to Mars. And so uh, I see an opportunity for uh, commercial and government partnership and exploration, not only with SpaceX, uh, but with other companies as well. I mean, this could this is kind of an exciting model uh, that could help pave the way to, to do just that, to get us to Mars in, in a kind of a partnership. Well, and it would in somewhat protect these uh, programs from the whims of congressional budget cuts. Well, that's true, and, and, and fortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, uh, our system here, we have uh, elections every four years or so, and, uh, uh, you know, if you have an administration change, suddenly there's, you know, hard left rudder or hard right rudder, and, <laughs> and what we were doing is, is no longer uh, uh, what we're going to be doing in the future, and so it's very difficult with these starts and stops and left and right turns that, uh, uh, to sustain a program. So there have been calls to kind of reform the way that NASA is funded to make it 
longer term, things like that. Uh, it's gained a little bit of ground, but unfortunately not a whole lot has changed. So that's just a, a reality of our, our system, which, you know, has its merits, too. Uh, you, you know, you don't have someone uh, electing themselves president for life, for example. But there seems to be sort of a lack of understanding of what it takes and how long these scientific endeavors require. I mean, you you can't pull the plug on a 10-year, 20-year program every few years. And uh, I, I have a problem with our leaders' understanding of uh, of of long term scientific uh, discovery, just in in general, um, and I I sometimes wonder why we don't have a legal instrument like we do with entitlement programs, for example. Mm-hmm. That if this is a space program that is twenty years or thirty years out, uh, that somehow that budget allocation is protected. Is there any kind of legal instrument that would allow that? Well, uh, that's certainly outside uh, my area of expertise, but I, but I know two or three years ago there was an effort to do exactly that, to make the NASA administrator position longer than, you know, four years so that it's uh, uh, something that would survive a, a party change in the, in, you know, in the presidency. Yes. Uh, there was an effort to, to do the same thing with the NASA budget to protect exactly, like you said, long-term programs uh, from cancellation or big radical changes in direction if uh, uh, another party gets, the other party gets elected. And so uh, I'm not sure where that went. There was some some interest in that, I know, among the politicians, but I don't think anything of substance really happened with that, unfortunately. It, it didn't. Uh, as with many good programs, it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is why I'm raising it, because I'd like the American public to understand if you've got a 50, 60, 70-year program, uh, it really can't be subject to political whim. Uh, right. It doesn't work that way. You know, you, if you pull the plug halfway through, you lose all that investment. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I remember when I was selected to be an astronaut in 1990, it was a very exciting time. Uh, President Bush, 41, had just proposed the Mars mission, and, uh, you know, he wanted to land uh, humans on the Mar- on, on the surface of Mars by 2019, which back in 1990 seemed like an awful long time away, so far away that the Congress and the public kind of lost interest in it. But here we are, just a few years from 2019. I mean, if we had, had uh, you know, if Congress had approved his proposal for 24% increase, NASA's budget and and this long-term Mars program, and if we'd had these uh, instruments in place, as you say, to protect the the funding for the program, I mean, we could be on the verge of traveling to Mars in just a few years. But unfortunately, we're really no closer now, not much closer now, than we were back in 1990. Yeah, there are uh, several scientists that say we would be launching our first expedition to Mars now. Right, right. And so it's, it's a disappointment, to be sure. So how much of the these uh you know whimsical budget cuts have to do with losing our leadership position? Well, yeah, right. And so I think what happened is, you know, we Americans, we have taken for granted that, that we've been the leader in human spaceflight for so long. We've taken for granted that and we think we will always be the leader. But I mean, here we are. It's been almost 5 years uh since we gave up you know, we consciously gave up the ability to launch astronauts into space when we retired the space shuttle. And, uh, you know, hopefully in the next, uh, by 2017, uh, we will see SpaceX and Boeing both be successful in, again, launching our astronauts from U.S. soil to the International Space Station. But, you know, we gave up that ability, and, and still, we are still the lead partner in the International Space Station program, and you could argue that we are still leading that. But yes. uh, we've got a plan but not for, for long. But not for long, and I think everyone sees that on the horizon. Now, we have to take our final intermission. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, 
you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm a big fan of wines by Caraccioli Cellars. And today I'm here with Scott Caraccioli, who's one of the brains behind the most memorable wines money can buy. So I have a question for you. How did your family get into the wine business? Um, You know, in 2006, my father, his brother and uncle were really playing with the idea of planting a vineyard. And planting a vineyard turned into making a bottle, turned into making sparkling wine when um, Michelle came into the picture. So it was really kind of an organic situation, us being in agriculture in the Salinas Valley, and then the extension of that went to grapes, and here we are today. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where one bottle is never enough. People do not like going to the dentist unless they're going to this dentist. Hello folks, Michael Olson here with Dr. Guy Peabody. Dr. Guy, is there a correlation between oral health and overall physical health? Absolutely. When when your oral health is is intact and, and things are healthy, your overall health is that much better and that much healthier. You feel better. When you've restored dental health to somebody who hasn't had any for a long time, what kind of change does that affect in them? Well, it, it brings about a tremendous sense of confidence within them and uh, and peace of mind. This is how we make people smile inside. Well, there it is, folks. If you want to smile inside, Call Dr. Guy Peabody for our consultation today and wake up to a great smile tomorrow. That's Dr. Guy Peabody at 831-457-0343 or visit drpeabody.com. That's drpeabody.com. For the last 60 years, Coast Paper and Supply has been serving locals and businesses for all their cleaning and paper supply needs. With an 1,800-square-foot showroom and nearly 5,000 products, you'll find everything you're looking for in the way of janitorial supplies, retail and industrial packaging, and disposable food service products for business or home, not to mention their huge selection of boxes and shipping supplies. Their family-owned and operated business is located at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz. Call 831-423-3350 or visit Coast Paper Supply. Inc.com, a proud member of Think Local First. The Cannabis Connection is the media outlet for the community to engage with policy, science, culture, and industry professionals in order to orient themselves in the rapidly evolving cannabis renaissance in our society. Our goal is to educate and open a dialogue surrounding the potential that this plant provides to heal people's ailments, but also heal our society from a social and economic standpoint. Tune in and participate in the process of building awareness and raising consciousness through education on The Cannabis Connection. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former commander of the International Space Station, Mr. Leroy Chow. Now, not a lot was made about the fact that you made a report of seeing an unidentifiable flying object during a <laughs> spacewalk 230 miles above the Earth's surface. According to the report, you saw some lights in a line, and then this was later attributed to the lights of a line of fishing boats on Earth. But what I have been trying to figure out is how those fishing boat lights were reflected in outer space. <laughs> right, and so I was actually on my my uh, my final spacewalk of my career. It was a Russian spacewalk. Uh, I was outside of the space station with my crewmate uh, Saljan Sharipov. We were wearing Russian spacesuits, installing navigation antennas, and we were in that time just uh, be- be- between um, the darkness and light, kind of in that twilight period, just before sunrise, or right kind of during right, right as the sun was about to come up, where uh, everything's just this kind of murky whitish cloud and you really can't 
see, you don't, you know, you really don't know which way you're looking. You can't, during the nighttime, you can see the earth, you can see the lights of the cities and things like that. And of course, during the daytime, you can clearly see features on the earth. But in that twilight zone, um, no pun intended, where, you know, you're, you're kind of, especially during a spacewalk, you don't necessarily know which way the space station is pointed at the moment. And so you don't know if you're facing the earth or not. And I saw this line of lights and uh, with, with kind of an, a, a modified V formation seemed to fly by. And I, and I called out to, to my crewmate. I said, hey, Salajan, I said in Russian, I said, did you see those lights? Did you see those lights go by? And uh, he didn't. He was facing the other way. And then the sun came up, and, of course, then, you know, everything lit up and, and everything was gone. But, um, you know, being in this day and age of uh, people able to hear everything, uh, somebody heard my transmissions, and uh, quickly it was on the Internet that I had seen UFOs flying. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> Well, it, you well know, we I, have <laughs> to point out a line of lights would be highly irregular to see in outer space. Well, that's true. But, you know, what I thought it was at the time, I thought I was looking at a constellation of satellites, maybe a, maybe a constellation of military satellites doing some kind of a, you know, in some kind of a, an intelligence gathering or reconnaissance, uh, synthetic aperture, uh, radar or something, you know, some kind of, some kind of military satellites. But, um, uh, so I didn't think too much of it. And, but almost as quickly as somebody reported me seeing UFOs, uh, <laughs> somebody else figured out, you know, because they knew exactly what time I made those transmissions and they knew could figure out exactly what part of the earth uh, the ISS was over at the time and they figured out we were off the coast of uh, South America and there had been a line of fishing boats you know with uh, on in just using very bright lamps to attract squid yes. and I guess that's how they attract squid and so it was the rotation of the earth that made these lights appear to fly by and it was that perfect timing we were in that twilight when I didn't I didn't know which direction I was looking in and just caught a glimpse of those lights as they seemed to fly by so Anyway, you know, we've, we, uh, most astronauts have seen odd things in space, but uh, yes. they've all been explained as, uh, as uh, <laughs> you know, well, either man-made commercial or pilots. Phenomenon. Yeah, a lot of commercial pilots file uh, sightings with the sure, uh, sure. FAA of weird right. things they've seen just, uh, you know, <laughs> flying above the Earth's surface. That's right, so, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and now you have been very skeptical of stories that, aliens have visited the earth because you make the point there'd be no reason for them not to show themselves you know why why are they undercover and i have to admit that makes an awful lot of sense on the other hand the kepler spacecraft has compiled now a list of 3500 more potential planets mm -hmm. uh so the odds are getting bigger and bigger that we're going to discover some kind of sophisticated life elsewhere would you agree with that Oh, absolutely. I, I, uh, I think it, it is the height of arrogance to think that we are the only life in the universe. Uh, I personally believe that there is life everywhere, all over the place in the universe. It's just that the distances are so vast. I mean, we're talking light years or hundreds of light years or even farther away. Uh, you know, the, the distances that we can barely imagine, you know, just imagine the distance that light would travel in 100 years. And that's maybe how far apart, you know, we are from the next, next uh, planet with uh, intelligent life on it. And so I think there's there's life everywhere in the universe, and, you know, it, it goes through cycles. Life begins somewhere in the universe. It, it goes out somewhere else, and, and there's this constant cycle of life starting and ending in different pieces of the universe. And, 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 and you know, I have to say I'm a little skeptical of whether we'll ever find uh, each other. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll find evidence of past life on Mars. That would be very exciting. Um, it's not out of the question that we will find some indication of life elsewhere in the universe, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm extremely skeptical that there's a, a civilization so advanced that they didn't wipe themselves out, number one, and that then they were able to travel here, find us, travel here, and then, you know, come and explore us undetected. Well, I guess if we do find other life forms, you may get answers to your recent questions about the new Star Wars movie, yeah, uh, such right. as uh, how <laughs> ships fly in formation at light speed and what kinds of fuels they use to propel them back and forth through the atmosphere. Right. I loved your review of the Star Wars movie. I mean, what, oh, what better review could there be than from the, the former space station commander? 
Well, I, I have a lot of fun uh, uh, writing those reviews and watching the movies. I, I do my best to check my astronaut and engineer hats at the door because it is entertainment after all. And but I do enjoy them, even though I can't help but notice some of the the technical, you know, in, <laughs> you know, inaccuracies. But uh, uh, I, I I never dwell on them. I don't I don't try to make it, you know, unless they're too bad. <laughs> no, I have to direct my audience to uh, go, you know, go search it on Google, and you will see uh, the movie through a entire different perspective and I, I truly enjoyed that. <laughs> Lastly, uh, we're just about out of time. Do you have a web page or a social media site where people can go to learn more about your activities and your views? Oh, you bet. Yeah, I've got a personal website. It's LeroyChow.com, very imaginative, L-E-R-O-Y-C-H-I-A-O.com. Uh, I also am on, on Facebook, uh, so you can. I have a public page called CDR. Uh, Leroy Chow, CDR for Commander, and uh, the Twitter. I, in fact, I was the first astronaut to join Twitter and Facebook back, back in 2007. Uh, my Twitter handle is Astro, A-S-T-R-O, underscore Dude, D-U-D-E. Um, and I, I also have a company I just uh, formed recently with uh, my wife, Karen, and, the, and another business partner, an educator, uh, and it's called uh, One Orbit CDR, or One Orbit LLC. We're a training solutions company for both corporations and for schools, and our website is oneorbitcdr.com. So it's O-N-E-O-R-B-I-T-C-D-R.com. Uh, so you can go to any or all of those sites and uh, check it out, and get, there are ways to get in touch with me and be happy to, to have conversations about just about anything. Well, that is terrific, and I know a lot of our audience will be in touch because they are space enthusiasts. <laughs> they <laughs> sent a lot of Facebook messages and questions, and Excellent. I know that we didn't even get to, to uh, close to a small percentage of them. But I'm afraid that is all the time that we have today. But before we say goodbye, I do want to thank you for your courage and your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Chow. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be on your show, and I uh, wish you all and all your listeners all the very best of luck. Thanks. Thank you. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Leroy Chow, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Is America in danger of losing its leadership in space? And if so, what should the next president do to make sure that doesn't happen? According to Chow, cooperating with China would be a good step in the right direction. Do you agree? Send your comments to our contact page at RebeccaCosta.com. And if you happen to miss the full interview with Commander Chow, remember you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And if you haven't been to our website yet, well, do that now because it is chocked full of videos and book reviews and blogs and breaking news. And all you have to do to enjoy all of it is go to RebeccaCosta.com. Be sure to check out our new blogs on Richard Pearl, Ralph Nader, and Ann Coulter. And while you're at the website, don't miss our incredible bookstore because anytime you click on any book on the bookstore and go straight through to Amazon.com, they pay a royalty for everything that you buy on Amazon. So it's a great way to help support your favorite weekly news program. And I do mean everything. New printer, Fitbit, even a pair of socks. Anything that you buy on Amazon, a percentage goes to supporting this program. My guest next week is CNN host and journalist Ashley Banfield. She'll be in the house and she'll be here to talk about whether we need more new laws or whether we have an oversight and enforcement problem two completely different things so don't miss ashley banfield next week right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics now stay tuned for a second hour of straight talk radio you're listening to the costa report
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 